welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. And we're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all begun and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is visit us and click play. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Today, we're going to spend time with two remarkable writers, Stuart Ross and Gary Barwin. I hope you'll indulge me for a moment. I'm recording this on Rob McLennan's birthday, and as I'm introducing Stuart, I can't help but think of our mutual friend, the poet Michael Dennis. Many, many years ago, when we were first contemplating starting the festival, it was Rob McLennan's myriad literary events that made it seem like it might be possible to pull off. And specifically, it was a reading Rob held featuring Michael Dennis and Stuart Ross that blew my mind so completely I knew in that moment that the festival was worth trying and that it might even be fun. So happy birthday, Rob, and thank you to the late, great Michael Dennis for his life, his work, his humor, and above all, his unpretentious genius. Our host today is a dear friend and one of this country's true literary treasures. Stewart is a poet and editor, a teacher, an author, and an inspiration. He began his career selling chapbooks on street corners and has gone on to publish dozens of books with many of this country's most respected presses and to win a Relit Award for Short Fiction, the Harborfront Festival Poetry Prize, and the Canadian Jewish Literary Award. Today, Stuart will introduce us to Gary Barwin. They'll have a chat, we'll hear some music, a short excerpt from Gary's latest novel, Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, and hopefully in about 30 minutes, you will feel an uncontrollable compulsion to support an independent bookseller and to stock up on books by Stuart, Gary, and your other favorite authors. Hi there, I'm Stuart Ross on behalf of the Ottawa International Literary Festival and this evening I am speaking to Gary Barwin, author most recently of Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, the Ballad of Motel the Cowboy uh, from Random House Canada. And full disclosure, I've known Gary for about 35 years. We've collaborated on all sorts of things and it's a real pleasure to uh, talk with you tonight, Gary, in this rather formal way. Hmm. Why, Mr. Ross, I am, I am charmed that I have had this opportunity to discuss literature with you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it is <Gary>. strange. <laughs> Gary's a writer, he's a composer, he's a sound poet, he's a musician, um, he's a visual artist, and he's the author of 25 books of poetry and fiction and books for children. His recent best-selling novel, Yiddish for Pirates, was the winner of the Stephen Leacock Award for Humor, as well as the Canadian Jewish Literary Book Award and the Hamilton Literary Award. Uh, this book was also a finalist for both the Scotiabank Giller Prize and the Governor General Literary Award for Fiction. 
He's also recently the author of For It Is a Pleasure and a Surprise to Breathe, New and Selected Poems, an incredibly eclectic, colorful, and uh, trademarkly Gary <laughs> Wild of Book of Poetry from, uh, from Hamilton's, uh, pre what press was that again? Wolves I can, can win. I can win. Gary has a PhD in music composition. He's taught creative writing at several colleges and universities, where he's also held many residencies. His prose and poetry has been published in literally hundreds of magazines and journals around the world, from Granta and the Walrus to, of course, Reader's Digest. Who would expect anything different? Um, what, about, Gary, what about dwarf puppets on parade? That my uh, yes, and of course uh, some of the and and I believe you were also perhaps in the Northern Testicle Review, uh, one of my own magazines. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, oh, which really fits in with this right, right? Whole, uh, discussion tonight. <laughs> Gary was born in Northern Ireland to South African parents of Ashkenazi descent, and now he lives in Hamilton, Ontario. So it is really great to be talking with you in this this different kind of way, Gary. Um, so I spent the weekend reading, 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 nothing the same, everything haunted, the ballad of Moto the Cowboy. And it was an astounding and remarkable work and also very moving and incredibly funny. And maybe I'll start off with that. How did you, in fact, this is a novel that is largely about genocide, genocides in Eastern Europe, genocides in North America. How did you navigate the use of humor in a novel about genocide? I mean, really, what could be more funny, right, than, than the death of millions of people? No, it, yeah, no, it is, it is tricky. And um, I guess I take, I, I take humor to be, um, I like to say it's like a great human technology for, for getting through, for surviving, for um, mm. leavening horror, for having agency in a situation. If you can somehow tell a joke about something, no matter how horrific your situation, you're, you're, in, you're the one telling the story. So, you know, you have, you have agency. And I also think that if you're telling a joke, you are imagining telling it to somebody. So you're building a kind of community, even if the person isn't there, you're just imagining it. So that, you know, I really think about humor and humor in the Jewish tradition, particularly as one way that Jews have always made it through dark times. And I, and I think also humor, humor really unpacks, like it surprises. So if you're telling a story, like, like I, um, rabbis sometimes will start a sermon, not that I not that I've been to, um, you know, been to synagogue since the temple fell, but, but um, I, uh, I, rabbis will start, um, you know, they'll start telling, they'll start by a joke, which then unpacks some way of looking at something differently. It's because it, but almost by its um, definition, humor like pulls a rug out from underneath you and you have to then re-examine things. And so for me, it's actually a really good way of telling um, difficult stories. And also I think um, in this case, um, there have been lots of, it's not like there've been lots of stories about the Holocaust and it's easy for them to kind of calcify into like this, there's an official version and this is, it's, you know, and it doesn't, you don't organically respond to it in the very human way that you should. So for me, by destabilizing the whole thing, it maybe can make it more, um, more present, surprising you. So while you're dealing with this, you know, while you're, you're maybe, um, um, unsettled by the jokes or you're laughing at the jokes or you're surprised that you're laughing at the jokes in this you meanwhile it it, it leads you into um, thinking about um, 
this more difficult thing in a, in a kind of fresh way. Okay. Did you ever worry that people reading this might go, hey, what? why is he making all these terrible, hilarious puns in this book? Yeah. Of the um, I, I did. Um, but um, I guess, I mean, there's a tradition of make of jokes about, I mean, of, of tellings of the Holocaust using humor in a whole variety of ways from quite um, far back. And again, there's that Jewish tradition, but also I hope that it's apparent. I mean, there's some quite horrendous things that happen that I, or that have happened that I recount. So I hope I'm, I'm thinking rather that um, the humor helps you through reading this difficult stuff. I mean, you're, it's both hopefully moving and shocking, but then you also get a bit of a break and get some humor. Like the characters themselves are restoring themselves to humor. And I hope the reader is also, um, uh, also gets a break. They can also sit back and like, they can step back, you know, there's something funny. And then, although I do think it's kind of inter, it is sort of interwoven. Um, you know, I mean, even, you know, the Yiddish saying, um, uh, something like a man plans and God laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like, okay, you, you, like, uh-huh. how can we account for this horror? What do we think of? How is the world like this? Like it's some grim, dark joke and we can either give up in despair or we can find some kind of humor uh, or some kind of way to move it, move through and maybe some kind of some dark irony of the whole, you know, of the whole thing, I think. I mean, it really, really worked for me. And it also did for me create a, a kind of uneasiness. And I think that was wholly appropriate for a, a book with content of this nature. Um, it, it gave all these kinds of textures that I didn't expect. And I, I thought it was um, beautifully done in that way. Thank I'm you. Sure you know, I also, you sorry. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I once had a talk with uh, Drew Hayden Taylor, who, the indigenous writer, about, and who also is a humorist and has written an anthology of... Um, 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 me funny of indigenous humor and we we had this great talk about how indigenous people as well as Jews have a certain approach to using humor to deal with difficult things and my book deals with indigenous um, things too although I mean I'm not really making jokes about in that I'm keeping to yeah. my own um, uh, to Jewishness but but just that that is something that oppressed people people in people in difficult situations use as a way of dealing with it indigenous people as well as Jews, which I think I thought was really interesting. Well, that brings me to a question I had here, which was, is that in fact, what prompted you to bring um, uh, North American indigenous characters into this story of Eastern Europe during the Second World War? Um, well, what prompted me really was, I was thinking a lot about as me as a Canadian writer and what, uh, um, what I should write about, like what, in terms of what is important to discuss. And I felt a real responsibility I'm going to spend some years writing a novel. Like I want to write about something that is pressing to me. That's something that needs to be talked about. And so the, the situation or the, the, the genocide of indigenous people um, and, you know, is was something that I really wanted to address, but I wanted to be careful not to, not to tread in, in, in areas. It's not my, not my story to tell, you know, not I'm working as an ally, not as a, you know, not as a, a, um, a right. an ex, someone who's experienced it or as a witness. And also I was really thinking a lot about my own past, my, my own family's past. Um, and having spoken to some or listened to some indigenous writers speaking, they were people were indigenous writers were talking about people looking back on uh, settlers, looking back at their own heritage and really looking to, Kind of the sources of your own culture, um, as well as also uh, discussions of intergenerational trauma. And I was really thinking about 
it, I, as I thought more about my family and thinking about intergenerational trauma, my family, my grandparents um, all managed to get out of Eastern Europe before the Holocaust, but the rest of the family didn't. And yeah. so they lived with this. Um, you know, I know that I know that we've talked about this in regard to your family. I know it's the case of lots of Jews. They deal with this shadow over their history and over, you know, and their way in the world. So um, I, when I thought a lot about intergenerational trauma, and then I found out that as, as I was doing some research that in fact, Hitler had actually modeled some of the, um, uh, some of the things that uh, some of the Holocaust after specifically after uh, techniques used against indigenous people in North America, which was, you know, horrifying. Um, and that coupled with um, his favorite books were these Westerns written by this German Karl May, which valorized uh, indigenous people. Um, so, both those things, right? It's so like indigenous people as the, as these sort of warriors. Um, in the book, I call them noble cabbages, in, or making fun of them as, uh, uh, or Germans who are imitating yes. indigenous people are noble cabbages. Uh, yes. It was really the noble savage uh, trope that Hitler ascribed to, but also that idea of you know manifest destiny and clearing the West, making room for people. Um, making room for set, moving indigenous people or killing them and making room for settlers. In Eastern Europe, they were pushing people um, or killing them in Eastern Europe, in Poland and in, in the Baltics. So, I mean, it's, an, like, it's sort of an exact parallel and it was an explicit parallel that Hitler made. So it made perfect sense to connect the two, to explore, explore that. So my character is obsessed with Westerns like many, um, many people would have been or were about, you know, since um, Karl May started writing in the late 19th century, but still through, I mean, still now there's, there's um, Europeans who dress up as indigenous people and go to these fake powwows. And, and, you know, it's kind of an, it's astounding for us as North Americans that people could still sustain such. It really is about halfway through the book. I went, I, I got to look up some of this stuff. Is this for real? Again, it, it, is Gary actually making these things up or are these things for real? And I was so astounded to find um, so many things that actually surprised me were, were real. And, uh, and I've got to ask you, I mean, you must have done so much um, research. You know, I'm, I'm a writer who, uh, if I have to research things, I, I just don't, I just make shit up. But you obviously <laughs> researched. And yes. um, did you read any Karl Nye's books? I did, yes. I read, I got a big English translation of a whole bunch of them, and I read most of it. I kind of got bored after a while, I just or frustrated or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, remarkably familiar in terms of all the tropes of, you know, indigeneity that um, Europeans imagined. Um, and that I remember as a kid watching Westerns, right? In a little little Irish boy watching Gunsmoke yeah. or whatever, right? Watching, you know, Westerns. Um, although what's interesting is Karl May... Um, more than most Westerns, which have indigenous people, you know, um, as they're the bad guys. In Karl May, they were these, these, you know, these noble warriors, and this German um, settler guy joins them and as blood, as a blood brother and goes with them. And, and so, in fact, they're the heroes. So it's it's a different take on the Western. It's not cowboys and Indians as the old. Right. The indigenous people are, um, though they're stereotyped. Uh, there's, you know, there's, they're definitely a noble savage stereotype, but they are sensibly noble, which is why I think uh, Germans and other Europeans like um, that's why they cosplay and dress up as indigenous people in this sort of this stereotype version of it, rather than maybe dressing up as cowboys. Yeah, well, that, well, that was when I first started looking things up was when Motel stumbled upon the encampment of uh, Indianers 
Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So here, here's a story that uh, that Drew Hayden Taylor told me. He did this really great uh, CBC um, documentary about um, Indigenous people called uh, Finding Winnetou, or I think it's I think that's what it's called. I really. So he went as a Indigenous person went and met with a bunch of these fake in, Indigenous people. Indianers is what they call them. And um, so he, the movie is amazing because it's him as an Indigenous person, like looking surrounded by these. Germans dressed wow. in, you know, dressed in headdresses and all of that. And, and you know, and was dressed like he normally dresses, just in, you know, like jeans and a shirt. And, and he's looking out at the camera like, really? But he told, no, he was telling me that there was somebody who, I mean, I paraphrase this in the, the story in, in, in the novel. Um, now, I, now I'm going to mix up the gender of what, it, what it's supposed to be. I, um, I think it's jingle dancing is only supposed to be, it's either for, only supposed to be for male or female. I, I can't remember what is the, the actual authentic thing. So there was somebody of the other gender who wanted to, wanted to dress up like this. And um, so they, they uh, because they wanted to be authentic. So how do you be authentic? Because, you know, you're not supposed to. So they went to talk to an elder to get guidance. But of course, the elder was like a Czech elder, like a Czech indigent, like a Czech person dressed up as an, and so it's this whole like alternate universe. And it's so fascinating about who people think they are, who they want to be, how they want to be. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of what I was, you know, in the novel thinking about people imagining being somebody else as a way of making it through whatever they think they're making it through, or as a way of not dealing with what they need to deal with. I think like these, uh, you know, Indianers. Wow. We, let's go back to the very beginning. Can you do you know what the first little kernel of an idea for this book was? The first thing that made you think, "Hey, there's a novel that I should be writing." Um, I think I was thinking of the connection, and then I remember that um, my friend uh, Tor Lukasik Foss, who we're going to hear his song that he wrote for the for mm -hmm. the um, uh, the book, but he was telling me about um, an, there was an artist he knew, uh, Stephen Loft, who um, uh, it, uh, is um, Part in part Mohawk and part Jewish, and so his he he created an art piece where he got tattooed on his forearm, um, um, his status number as if it were a concentration camp number, and it to me it was just like oh right, right the kind of connection between the Holocaust and indigenous genocide that was just such a potent image to me. I'm just thinking about that connection, and so then I started unpacking what that meant and did research and really thought through. Um, similarities and connections, and then I'm doing lots of research about um, about the Holocaust. I remember once um, my grandfather, who 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 left Lithuania and would never talk about the Holocaust, but spent his life looking for family that he was disconnected from, yeah. who had been lost. And um, during my, we had this cheesy wedding video made when when um, my wife Beth and I got married, and he. he um, he, he joked around and then he looked at the camera and said, you know, we lived together with the Lithuanians for, you know, for hundreds of years and they betrayed us and they killed us. And he looked in this way that was, I'd never seen him look. This is kind of, you know, you look at somebody and you sort of see the pain and I'd never seen it. And it always struck me. I mean, that was when I that was 33 years ago. And that haunted me ever, you know, to think, what does that mean? How did he live with that? And what does that mean to my family? And so, you know, that was something that really I wanted to unpack and really think about what that meant and look into that history. So particularly about Lithuania and the history, it's a different history and not as well known as, say, in Poland with concentration yeah. camps. It was hard. I mean, um, it's all it's all horrific. It was just a different kind of horrific. It was a lot more 
Lithuanians were involved and it was a lot more sort of, um, they weren't these factory-like camps. There were people killing people, you know, with guns and, and other awful means. So a much more, <laughs> um, I was going to say much more personal touch as it were, like, just, like, I mean, just like, and that kind of being able to look at somebody as opposed to this sort of more remote hurting people into into factories. Anyway, it was an important story to be told and I thought it needed to be examined in a, in a book. So for me, those were the places where it came from. Okay. And yeah, the those those kinds of murders and tortures that you are alluding to were absolutely harrowing in the novel. And yeah, I was just hoping that some pun would come along soon and uh, release me a little bit from some of those scenes because um, they were they were devastating and the simplicity with which you described them was so, so striking because you didn't have to make great, you didn't have to do anything but sort of almost state the facts in a, in a very spare way. And I thought those scenes were very, very effective. No, very <clears throat> I know. I'm really glad because it is hard to know how to, I mean, for me to like, I would research it and I'd, you know, shake just having read these things and these, I read, uh, survivor testimonies and I read all and it was so I mean so awful to contend with um and also didn't, I also didn't want to put the reader through it but I needed to and so it's like okay we are all in this together how do we make it through this and without being like rah rah we're heroic and we're going to have these amazing amazing um escapes but there were amazing like there were remarkable coincidences and ways that people somehow made it through which um not to make them heroes, they just somehow made it through with just, sometimes it was luck, sometimes it was luck combined with resourcefulness, or just, you know, I mean, there were, and so, you know, even survivors would talk about the, some of these stories that were, and they, and they, well, of course, there was this light in the way they escaped, as much as they were shadowed by horror, sometimes there were these, like, there are just these astounding stories. There's one story, um, that is a true story, it seems like it's, it would be fake, but there's the, the poet Avram, uh, um, so it's cover, um, I think it was him or this, um, he was a resistance fighter as well. And so yeah. he was a leader of the partisans and he actually escaped. Um, he, he, he had to go through a, um, a minefield and he, he didn't know how to, how possibly he was going to be able to walk across and not die. So he said, okay, well, if I, if I walk to the rhythm of, of the song, I, I'll just rely, I'll trust that. And he made it like, he just and he stepped across like, and he somehow you know um made it across and like those kind of stories you just need to say something like that right and it's just you know it's just kind of remarkable right um um or there's a story it just i tell a story in the book um it was just actually it uh it was a story that a friend of our families told us about being in in um in the a ghetto in in hungary um he saw a guy, he wants to get into the ghetto. He's, and, um, he's not going to be allowed in. So he, uh, he has a bottle of vodka to give to the guard. And so the guard says, oh, okay, great. And then he goes and hides it. And then he, and then he goes into the ghetto. And my, my parents' friends saw where he hid it. And so he went and he went and he took it. And he said, oh, yeah, here's another one. <laughs> and it's like, just the kind of like amazing, right? In the midst of, you know, of a nightmare, you have this, it's, it's kind of a funny story in the midst of this. Absolutely. You know, and you have that kind of, you find that kind of gumption in some way, right? And just, and then you tell it, you're telling the story years later, you know, um, 
you know, not diminishing the horror, but 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 the kind of delight and and of the story and of and of the escape, you know, you know that, that always those sorts of things just um, leave me in awe, you know. And I also think about what would I if I were there, would I have been able? How could I have done? Like, what would it? It's hard. It's completely inconceivable to know, you know, to imagine. I think that's what we all ask ourselves when we read things like this, read stories like this. What would I have done? How could I have done this? Would I have had the courage? Would I have had the the nerve to be do something so mischievous um, in such a heavy situation? Um, yeah, right. Uh, but but people did ordinary people. I mean, yes, there were people um, who were like leaders of the partisans, but there were also people who were just people who just sort of found. I I don't know. I was thinking about. Um, um, sometimes Beth has nightmares and she shrieks in the night, just general nightmares. And I find myself on my feet in this like ready to fight crouched way, like as if I, wow. like completely instinctually, right? It's like, okay, it's my, I'm in, I'm home, my family. And I'm just like, and it's not me. It's like some deep instinctual something. Or, I mean, it's me, you yeah. know what I mean? It's not like my decision. It just happens. And so I wonder, right? Like if, if we would somehow rise, I mean, I, I sort of think I would just like, crawl in a ball and weep, but maybe I wouldn't, maybe I would somehow in, it would, something would kick in and basic survival and survival of my family. Right. Right. Yeah. We don't know what, um, what we're capable of until we're faced with extremes. Right. Or maybe I would crouch in a, in a, in a fetal position and tell bad jokes that I, that I definitely could see happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, I just wanted to thank you. Uh, it was so lovely to see, uh, uh, one of the Rosofsky family um, appear uh, early on in the book. Delightful, <laughs> my my old family name. Yes, oh, I'm glad you saw that. I'm coming. I have a new book coming out next year, and and I always think, okay, is this the one where I'm going to change my name to Rosofsky, from Ross to Rosofsky? Finally, going to change my name on the cover of this book. But it was it was just nice to see. I think you sort of saved me from doing that by having Rosofsky <laughs> here in this incredible, picaresque uh, tale of Muttel. Um, you know, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to oh, go on because I was going to talk, um, move on to the song there, but you had something else. Oh, no, I was just, I mean, I just think about it, you know, it's a strange um, connection that uh, Jewish people have from, from who are Ashkenazi Jews from Europe, thinking about our families, right? And how we got here, right? We, you, like you and I met each other in Toronto, but our families really are, are you know, like back some generations are from Eastern Europe. And, and there's, we, we share these stories and 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 part of it is sharing the story of of the per persecution i mean of or of of genocide right Absolutely. and that's a weird connection and then having lost some of our culture and so part of to me writing these stories is also about finding is telling the stories speaking for the culture and the culture of jokes and the culture of belief and the fam and family and i mean i don't speak yiddish because my grandfather who spoke yiddish when he as a his mother tongue um you know escaped he emigrated and and so you know um, and similarly, like you as well, right? You're, you're like, I don't know how far back Yiddish goes in your family, but it would have been certainly in Europe, they would have spoken Yiddish, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I think about that. And so, you know, to me, like also like putting my friend's name in it, not only it's about friendship, but it's also about like a, a you know, a, um, a, a, a marking connection, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, I felt that. And, it, and I was, and I was delighted as well and, and sort of shocked. Um, <laughs> So yeah, you mentioned um, you're a guy who does a lot of collaboration. I know as I've collaborated with you, you've collaborated with a yeah. lot of um, artists in music and in writing and in sound work. 
And I guess this is exactly a collaboration, but a friend of yours, Tor, um, uh, created a song, a sort of a, almost a theme song for the book. Maybe it's uh, something that uh, people finish the book and they turn to the acknowledgements pages that that song will sort of seep up out of the book. <laughs> I think that would be good for the, the publisher to engineer. But tell me a little bit about that and maybe we'll hear the song. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, so my friend Tor Lacastic Foss um, is an artist and a, and a musician, and he actually wrote a song for my last novel, uh, Yiddish for Pirates. Um, it's a hilarious, hilarious song. Although that one he wrote having not read the book. He just picked up a few key uh -huh. things and I fed him some lines. And so, but this one, I really like it because what it really is, is a response. He, he was reading the I, I invited him to write a song, but he was reading the book and then he just had, it said it just came, you know, the ideas came to him for the song as a response, as a reader, like he's a creative person. So his readerly response is to make something, which is in this case, this song. Um, and I had talked to him a lot about cowboys because he, he, he performs under Tiny Bill Cody, which is kind oh. of a kind of a joke about cowboys and he's a big tall guy. So he's, he's tiny. Mm -hmm. And Bill Cody, like uh, wild Bill Cody was just a, a made up fake, like frontiersman. He never, he wasn't actually a frontiersman. And so oh, he okay. just, he's a pretend cowboy and Tor is a Norwegian pretend cowboy. So the idea of cowboy as an art, you know, cowboy songs as an artifice, but as a, as a structure to address real things is something that really, we were both really connected to. I can play the song. In fact, let's hear it. Called the Ballad of Mottle the Cowboy. I'm without a set of stones, and I'm clumsy with a gun. I clutch a cowboy novel like a talisman And I stumble through the crack of dawn into the setting sun Ooh, the setting sun And I wear another's clothes I lean on those who'll hide me And I can barely stand or sleep From all the worry down inside me For the names of all my people I can only whisper quietly Ooh, whisper quietly What do you call strong? And where do heroes come from? And who belongs in a western song? No one. blackened oak No fire to warm these hands, just dirty smoke 
No flowers to lay upon these graves Just a parting joke Passing joke What do you call strong? And where do heroes come from? And who belongs in a cowboy's song? No one Well, the path, it winds and aches Across the passing years Well, the darkness, it subsides only to reappear And all of it reminds me the reason why I'm here very much uh, for that, Gary. And also, it would be nice maybe just to hear you read a little bit um, yourself from the book, if you have, uh, you know, the perfect uh, little excerpt for us. Sure. No, I'd, I I would love to. So it's set in, in Vilnius or Vilna in Yiddish, uh, which um, city uh, biggest city in in um, in Lithuania. It's called the Jerusalem of the North because there was so much learning. There were so many Jews, Jews oh. there. And it's in, set in uh, July 1941. Mottle, Jewish cowpoke, brisket boy, my grandfather. As usual, he was bent over the kitchen table, his mottled and hairy nose deep in the pale valley of a book, half-finished plate of herring beside his elbow, half-eaten egg bread slumped beside a Shabbos candlestick. His old mother was out shopping for food while she still could. So, this model, was he a reader? If the world was ending, he would keep reading. The world was ending. He was still reading. So, what was this book he had to read despite everything? One of the great westerns of the American frontier, of course, even, the, even though he knew that Hitler adored them. The master race should be brave as Indianers, de Fuhrer had said, and sent boxes of Karl May's Winnetou noble savage novels to the Eastern Front to inspire his troops. Those same manifest destiny soldiers crossing the country with orders to kill Mottel, his mother and all the other Jews. Did Mottel intend to do something about this? Yes. He would sit at the table, his schlumpy jacket turned up at the collar, his hat like a shroud of mice askew on his sallow head. 
and read. Was Model a man of action? If parking his tuchus all day and all night on a chair doing nothing but reading his action, his mother would say, he's a man of action. Action, sure. Every day he gets older and more in my way. But why was he still reading this Western? Because Mottel, this Litvak, this Lithuanian Jew, this inconceivable Zadie, my grandfather, the citizen of the wild East, that brave old world of ever-present sorrow, a sorrow that had just gotten worse, had chosen the life of the cowboy. He would be that hombre who sits on his chair and imagines being calm and steady and manly, speaking only the fewest of well-chosen words, doing only what he wanted and what he must under that vast, unpatented Western sky. And why not, he would say, should my life be nothing but the minced despair and boiled hope of an aging Jew, too thin to be anything but borscht made by Nazis? I choose to think of myself a pale-faced chuckline rider of the doleful countenance, a quixotic Ashkenazi of the Bronco riding the Ostlin Trail. Like my mother said when I told her I wanted to be a doctor, Mazeltov model, nothing is impossible when it's an illusion. Wow. Thank you so much. So great to hear that. I mean, I was, I did hear your voice when I was uh, uh, reading that book. Not that I think that's a necessity, but it's fantastic to hear you read. I just want to ask you one more question because you and I met in the world of small press. So I want to mm -hmm. ask you this. You are a guy who has um, shows of uh, concrete poetry and collaborative sound work and you make little, you have these hardcover books published and you have little leaflets that you're making at the same time and, and chat books, uh, the most ephemeral work and the most substantive work. Um, do you see it all as one large project, like doing a book like this from Random House as being either a continuation or sort of an organic part of your entire project as a writer? No, I do. I mean, I don't... Um... I don't really see a difference. I mean, there's all sorts of things I like to try as a writer. And I think, you know, obviously there's different things that work better. Some things are better for small press or there are little visual poems that work as some little artist book that, you know, is, is supposed to be small and tiny and in a small, small edition. That's part of what it works. And it finds the people who are interested in that. Some, some things uh, like this novel are sort of a, for a broader distribution and go to different places. So it's not only allows me different work and to try out different ways of writing, but it's also different ways of address, well, di addressing different audiences, but also different ways of addressing audiences. So, you know, some art, some art, visual art piece in a, in a gallery or some, you know, little, little leaflet, it, it, the, uh, the uh, audience, the reader for it in, interacts differently with it and thinks of the text differently than a book that you might, you know, you could walk into, you know, um, a big box store and find right that that's it's different and so um to me i want to talk to i want to try out many different kinds of writing and i want to talk to diff many different kinds of um readers i guess um one thing i say i would say that a novel allows which i find um like this kind of a novel is that i mean it has a broader readership so for me it, i really feel that i can like enter the discourse more broad, broadly. It, it's not a substitute for all that other stuff. I would never give that up talking to those people. But in general, people who aren't writers or aren't in the biz read these kind of novels. And that's something so lovely about that, right? Some guy walking down the street will come up and say, hey, I read your book and here's what I think, or this is how it connected to me, you know, or this is why I thought it was terrible, whatever, you know, which I, but I mean, I'm just part of that discussion. And that's such a lovely opportunity. 
as so is going to some small press fair and going, oh man, you know, you, I'd be looking for something like this. This is so cool. Here's my leaflet. And like, that's also a lovely thing. And they're different. They're just so different. Right. I really, really admire in you um, that in doing a book that's going to have it be published in a more conventional way for presumably a broader audience that you remain absolutely as inventive as you are in your other writing, your other kind of work, and that it feels to me like you're going, what can I get away with? Yeah. <laughs> Quote, unquote, commercial right, right. buck. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. so exhilarating to see. So thank you very much. It's been a wild thing to be able to, uh, to, to interview you, to have this kind of a conversation with you. Oh, thanks so much, Stu. That was Stuart Ross, author of Motel of the Opposable Thumbs, in conversation with Gary Barwin about his latest novel, Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.